Okay, Buzz, there's a spinner thing over here. I don't think we're live yet. Okay, here we go. All right, we are live. We're not going to start class yet. Just wanted to get it out there so the links can get figured out and get emailed out to everybody so everybody can find where this class is at for tonight. Uh, but if you're already connected, welcome to the Real Life Bible Fellowship class. I am uh, Pastor Randy Foster, and uh, I lead the Real Life uh, Bible class, the Adult Fellowship, one of the many Adult Fellowships we have here at HBF. And then I also uh, am what was called the Missions Pastor, so I interact with uh, the Missions Ministry of the Church and the Bible Publishing Ministry. Uh, so most of you I know already know all of that, but there may be somebody who is checking this out and doesn't know everything about us. And so Real Life Class is a class of um, uh, quite a few people. We have probably 35 or 40 all together that meet. And uh, normally we meet out in the modular classrooms, uh, trailers, classrooms, um, and uh, so we meet out there, but we've been meeting on Facebook for the last few weeks because of this, the limitations on social distancing and how many people we can have in, a, in any given room at any given time and so on. And so we're here, um, Facebook, and uh, so I'll, I'll give some announcements about some things that are coming up change-wise here in just a moment. Um but it is good to have you here with us tonight, and uh, what a beautiful weekend we've had. They keep threatening rain, but we haven't had any rain, maybe a little bit here there, but um, it hasn't really dampened any of our Memorial Day plans. Um, worked really hard the last couple of days in the yard. I'm totally exhausted. Uh, my body is saying, what did you do to me? But uh, it's good to get some things done. Uh, so we're going to be turned over to the book of Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark, chapter chapter 2. We'll be reading the first 14 verses, and then I will pray. Um, if you have a prayer request, please text that to Julie. Uh, her phone number is 816-808-8155. And um, that way you can get your prayer requests listed, uh, um, and we can pray for those things as a class. We like to pray for the needs that the class has and situations that are going on. Um, I will encourage you to pray for Annabeth Bonison. Um, she has a uh, situation with her immune system that is... Um, really difficult to explain right now for me, but basically she has a... She, but what is what is the test that she's having done? She's having a liver biopsy. And, um, and so I think on June... I don't remember the date. Well, let me look at my email. Well, I don't have my phone with me, but uh, Jeremy has kept me abreast of that, and unfortunately cannot keep you abreast of it, but... Julie's checking it out. But anyway, uh, please pray for Annabeth and the Bonison family all together. 
Um, she has a liver biopsy, and then uh, she's praying for a good results of that biopsy. Uh, I know that we also should be praying for Sharon uh, Bolkin, uh, her needs, that uh, she has several things going on. Uh, pray for um, Gwen Arnie, and uh, uh, her, her biopsy is June 3rd, Annabeth. She won't know her results until June 10th, so... You know how those kind of things are. You have a test, and then you have to wait for the results, and so it's stressful. Uh, so be in prayer for her every day, and uh, for Jeremy as well. And uh, and so there's others that need to be prayed for. There's other situations that need to be prayed for. If you do not get the prayer updates, which goes out, I believe, every Wednesday uh, via PDF file, call the office and get get on that distribution so you can be praying for everything. That needs to be going on. Um, so, um, announcement-wise, so you have a handout. I did email the handout to everybody earlier today. Uh, you can also get it. Actually, I didn't post it on. I'm not sure I can step out of this right now and post it, but I will post it in the real-life uh, class after the service is over with. Just a couple of announcements here. Uh, Bob Hall's cleaning team is June 21st. Lance Yoder's cleaning, cleaning team is September 20th. I'm sorry, July 25th. The men's breakfast is June 20th. And uh, we will be doing, you probably have heard this already, but if you have not. So today is Memorial Day weekend. Next weekend is May 31st, Sunday, which is a fabulous fifth Sunday. We will be doing the Lord's Supper i got a couple of other things I'll explain there in just a moment. Uh, but on the following weekend, June 7th, we will be doing Church in the Park. Every first Sunday of every year, for the last good several years, we've done Church in the Park at the Amphitheater in Harrisonville City Park. And we have permission to do that again this year. So we'll be doing that. Service will start at 10 o'clock. We have a few things that are different um, uh, than we have done in the past to accommodate what's going on, but play, pray for that because there's a lot of details that need to be worked out for that. The E-Wing, the children's ministry, will open up on June 14th. Uh, that's the, the Sunday following Church in the Park. That's also the first Sunday that we will have uh, full-on services in the building for everybody. Services at 1030 so um, we will maintain social distancing. Uh, you choose to wear a mask, you can. Um, we're not dictating that you have to wear a mask, but if you want to wear a mask, if you feel comfortable wearing a mask, then please wear a mask. Uh, I don't believe anybody will um, look down on you because you have a mask on. You do that as you as you're led, as your conscious leads. And um, and then uh, there's a few other things that's in the the uh, bulletin, uh, there is health and safety precautions that are listed there. Um, there is, um, uh, talks about May 31st, that is the Lord's table. We will have celebrate the Lord's Supper. We will not be passing the elements of the of the meal. We won't, will not be passing the, the uh, wafers or the uh, drink, the juice. Uh, we have a prepackaged uh, um, elements for those so you can, that way they stay sterile. 
if you're not going to be at church and you want to watch it from home, you can acquire these prepackaged uh, elements. Either go to the church or call the church and somebody will bring it to your home. Uh, or you can go by the church and pick it up. And that way you can participate from home. How to Disciple class begins on June 3rd. Uh, baptisms, if anybody needs to be baptized, June 20, June 14th. Next steps on for, for members or, or people thinking about planning on becoming members is June 14th as well. And there's several other things. I'm not going to read everything that's on here, but I encourage you to get this. Uh, read it. It was, should have been sent to you as a PDF. It's got all the details that you that I would go through right now, but I'm not going to take the time to go through all of those. But let's go ahead and turn over to Mark chapter 2. We'll read the first 14 verses, and uh, we'll pray there. Uh, I'll pray, and um, you can pray while I'm praying. I can't hear you, but you certainly can hear me, I hope. But at some point, I will close prayer, and then we'll get started in the lesson. But again, please remember the names that I mentioned that need to be lifted up in prayer, the Balkans, the Bonisons, um, <clears throat> the Arnies, and uh, just pray for our church. We haven't had anybody specifically in our church that I am aware of that has been desi- uh, um, what's the word? impacted or um, identified as having been having caught or I cannot think of the word I'm looking for. Not infected by the coronavirus right now, as far as I'm aware, nobody in our church. Uh, so that will that ought to keep you um, comfortable knowing that if we do gather on the 31st of March and everybody shows up there, that none of our members have the virus that we are aware of, which means we'll be safe. Um, and we can trust that. Uh, but uh, we will be screening people coming in the building anyway. Okay, Mark chapter one, chapter two, verse one, verses one to fourteen. And again, he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noise that he was in the house. And straightway many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as <clears throat> about the, excuse me, <clears throat> about the door. And he preached the word unto them. And they came unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when he had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the, of the palsy lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? That's, the answer is obvious to that. Jesus Christ is God. Verse 8, And immediately when Jesus perceived in his heart that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your heart? Whether it is easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and take up thy bed and walk. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy bed, and go thy way unto thy house. And immediately he rose, took up the bed, and went forth therefore, or before them all, in so much that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, 
We never saw it on this fashion. <clears throat> and he went forth again by the seaside, and all the multitude resorted unto him, and he taught them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom, and said unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. So let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we do want to lift up the many names that we have mentioned already. Uh, Annabeth Ponison, we pray for her. Uh, the the liver biopsy that she'll be having, Lord, will will prove um, um, positive in every aspect. The results would be good results. We pray for Sharon Bolkin. We pray for the Arnies, uh, the situation there. It's been a while, and sometimes it's easy to think about somebody like Gwaine, who who has dealt with his cancer uh, and apparently has um, overcome it and gotten victory over it. Which, which in a way is true, but he's still susceptible. He's still uh, always there. Um, and so we want to lift him up and keep him in prayer, Lord, that you would protect him and you would uh, just fight away any of the the uh, cancer that may want to resurrect itself. Pray, Father, for um, <clears throat> Judy Steele and just lift her up to you, Lord. She's fighting uh, battles all the time as well. We want to pray for every person in our class. We don't know every situation. We don't know every need. But we do know, Lord, that we all have certain things that occur in our life on a regular basis, and we need people to be praying for us just as a reminder, Lord, that you care for our needs. And so we pray for those needs. We pray for uh, the study that we're looking at, Lord, in the book of Philippians chapter 2. We ask, you, Lord, that you would guide and direct what needs to be said tonight, that you would control um, our thoughts, our hearts, our understanding. You would uh, be able to be to be clear in explanation, but also clear in reception of the things that we are going to talk about today. I'm going to pray, Father, for Pastor Brian, who carries a big load on his shoulders all the time, the, the health of our church. The spiritual health, physical health, bodily health, all of those needs, Lord. He, he, so he needs the strength that comes from knowing who you are. So we ask for him that you would give him the strength that he needs. We pray for all the pastors. We pray for the graduation um, of uh, Lawrence Toval, who has completed her four years at the Bible Institute. And uh, we pray for all of our students. We pray for anybody that is going to be stepping into Bible Institute for the first year this fall when we start classes again, and we're looking forward to seeing who they are. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. I do want to mention, I didn't mention already, but on June 29th, I believe, whatever the last Sunday is, maybe it's the 28th, but whatever that day is, the evening service is dedicated to a recognition of Lauren, Lauren Cohen, I wanted to say Lauren Stovall, but Lauren Cohen, uh, she has graduated from Heartland Bible Institute. She's completed her four years. She's written a dissertation. Uh, she's put in a lot of effort into working and getting ready. So we're going to have a celebration of graduation for her. I want to encourage you, please come to church on that night, uh, just so that we can celebrate with her, with her family, and uh, and just recognize uh, our highest discipleship uh, that we have at our church. 
And so keep that in mind. We'll be speaking more about that as we go forward. Uh, okay, so Matthew, um, Philippians chapter 2. We'll get started here. Kind of get myself situated, get my Bible open to the right page. So last week, last week we worked our way through verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, and we observed in those verses how Jesus became the model for humility, leading to his humility led to uh, an understanding of the unity that we should have in 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 our church. The saints uh, in the church of Philippi, uh, and I've told you this several times already, how they didn't have really any problems in the church. Uh, there was a little bit of a unity issue, which, we're de- which we dealt with last week. But Jesus Christ uh, was the example that Paul used to understand humility leads to unity. And we're all understanding of, a, of, the, of that. We, we, we were able to see that. And so the trip that we had through, as we went through those verses, was for the sake of, of what, what I would call its ethical and moral purpose, uh, to be a model for us in this matter, in this the manner where uh, he was humbling himself, and we ourselves learn from that, and we humble ourselves uh, for the sake of unity in the church. Uh, now, you, just, you, you can just imagine, and I think everybody has been in a situation where you haven't been in unity with somebody. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe just things aren't going good today. And so there's no unity. Um, so this is a simple example. Uh, but in the biblical example, it could be in ministry where the ministry is suffering because people are not unified. And they're not unified because they're not, not humble towards each other. And so Paul is exposing a much deeper view of Jesus Christ for us uh, in this passage in 5, 6, 7, and 8, all the way up through verse 11, which we're going to try to make it to today. And so, um, as we went through these verses last week, for the sake of its ethical and moral purpose, to be a model for us in this manner, um, we're going to look at uh, something completely different. We're going to take a deeper look at these verses, and we're going to see a deeper view of Jesus Christ for us, and we want to look at that now. So last week, we saw Jesus acting for the sake of unity in Christ. Uh, So just as a reminder... Well, in fact, let's just read the verses. We'll read, um, we'll start in verse 6. We'll read down through verse 8. Paul writes, he says, Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, the things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. We'll get to all those verses, but I wanted to go ahead and read through that as we looked at it, as we examined, as a reminder, the actions of Jesus Christ in humility as he secured a unity in the body. In verse 6, 
uh, first thing he did was he stepped out of he stepped out of the heavenly bounds. He had been in heaven as part of the Trinity, and he stepped out of the lofty place of you of of heaven. Verse seven it talks about him uh, taking actions of humility and securing a unity in the body. He emptied himself. Uh, he made himself of no reputation. The verse said, which means to empty. No, no reputation means to empty. He gave up heavenly glory, John chapter 17, verses 4 and 5. He said, I glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me. So he's talking about glory. He also gave up his authority, and he learned obedience, which we see in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. And that's a pretty interesting thing, that Jesus Christ learned, learned obedience. It says, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. He also gave up his divine nature. He didn't give up his divinity. He didn't give up his deity. He didn't stop being God, but he did give up his divine nature, and he limited his attributes. So those attributes would be omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, those type of things. Omni meaning all-inclusive, uh, all-powerful, all-knowledgeable, all um, all understanding. And so he did limit himself to some degree. Matthew 24, verse 36, But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So he's saying, I don't know when the when the, the world is coming to an end. I don't know when the second coming is going to happen. I don't know when all of that's going to happen. Yet he did, because he's God. But he limited himself to have access to that information. And in verse 8, Christ was found in fashion as a man, yet he humbled himself to the death of the cross. So verse 7 says he was in the likeness of men, but verse 8 said he was in fashion as a man. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more deeply here later in this in this message tonight. But he was seen as somebody who stood in the place of a sinner, and he was recognized, he recognized the significance of this humble action. He watched what um, even as he went to the video stopped. Okay, well, it's not going on my screen, which is fine. As long as it's going out, that's good. Um, okay, so today we need to go back and start in verse 5 again. And pass down through verse 11 because of the theological significance, which describes for us the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's amazing, really, that Paul would use such a highly uh, important passage of Scripture or, the, or explanation to talk about unity and humility. But what he also did was he talked about uh, the, the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So... Now, I don't want to retrace the same ground regarding the ethical and the memorial purposes. I know I kind of went through as a as a review. Um, but instead, what I want to look at is how Paul addressed the theology of, the Christ, of Christ as God in the flesh. Remember the verse where Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13, or verse 16, where he says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, that God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. That verse says that, that God became human, a human being. He was, just, he was manifest in the flesh. So while these verses um, 
that we're going to look at, coupled with a verse like 1 Timothy 3.16, they give us guidance on being unified based on humility, but they also tell us the truth about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Now, the word incarnate, uh, the word carnate is, is the word for flesh. Um, <clears throat> and uh, and so to be incarnate means uh, pre-incarnate is before he became uh, God in the flesh. Carnate is um, after he became God in the flesh, or before he be, after he became God in the flesh. So the word carnate means incarnate is in flesh, pre-carnate is, is prior to that. And so these verses that we're going to look at, they give us guidance on being unified based in humility. And they also tell us the truth about the incarnation. And the greatest miracle that God ever performed was when he stepped into humanity, becoming a man, that he might die for all of us. So not examining the truth of the incarnation of Christ that Paul wrote about, we really would be doing an injustice to what is found in these verses. So we've got to treat them for what they really are, which are doctrinal. This is a very doctrinal passage of Scripture, as a matter of fact. Now, this is not a passage like where Paul has written to like the Corinthians or to another church where he's taking doctrine. He's saying, your doctrine is wrong, and here's the truth doctrine. He didn't do that in this situation. But, he's, but, he, but he is using a, a very powerful doctrinal truth uh, to teach us some things. So chapter 2. Um, is about replacing our mind with the mind of Christ. Remember, we talked about that. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 is the key verse, uh, the tool that we talked about. We described these as a tool, right? Philippians 2, 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So how we think about humility and unity, as well as how we process circumstances, are all part of our mind. What we have in our mind, how we use our mind, to process information, that's important. So as Jesus became the greatest model for our unity, it is in seeing what was in his mind and making what was in his mind in our mind. And so as Jesus became the greatest model for our unity, it was in seeing what was in his mind and making those our own. That that is a significant part of this. So that's what it means to let the mind of Christ be in you. And chapter 2 is about what having Christ's mind should do in your life. So we start with verse 5, and it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So there's a word, the phrase, the phrase, let this mind be. If you look up that phrase, you'll see that the word is proneo. And proneo is a verb. Uh, It's a Greek verb that means to think similarly uh, or to have the same understanding and wisdom. And uh, we talked about a little bit about this last week, and I used the example of of just having um, two people who their minds think about the same things. They 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 they're all on the same page, so to speak. Uh, and that's that's what we're talking about here. So so the word proneo, let this mind be, it means to be agreed together, having the same mindset, or to be minded together by involving the will the affections, and the conscience. So um, I'm in agreement with Jesus Christ. His mind, I want my mind to be his mind. I want to be in agreement with Jesus Christ. I want to, I want to uh, have the same mindset that he has. I want to think things the way he does. That's what it's talking about. Is it still working? Okay. 
Don't know what happened here. Anyway, so we start, you and I, we start with having the same mind and understanding unity as Christ gave example. And Paul wants the saints to understand that possessing the same mind as Christ, that's a crucial thing to establishing and maintaining unity in the body founded in Christ. There's Philippians, if you look over at chapter 3, verse um, verse 15, says, let, this, let us therefore as many as be perfect be thus minded. And in, if anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal it even unto you. And so what Paul is saying here in chapter 3 is, you need to have the same mind as Jesus Christ, but if you don't, God will reveal it, and he will straighten you out, and he will get your mind to be where it needs to be thinking. And Romans chapter 12 and verse 16 says, Be of the same mind, one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. And that's an interesting way that he ended that verse when he talks about conceits. Because these verses tell us to have the same mind towards each other and towards Jesus Christ. And we must avoid the conceit of attempting to have our own thinking rather than the thinking of Christ and what is in his mind. I don't want to get into the details, and I'm certainly not going to name names right now, but there is a there is a almost daily uh, posting of by by a Christian that all he seems to want to do is get into an argument with people. He says he doesn't. He says he just wants to present his case. But I'm thinking... You're not on the same page. You're not in the same mind. Uh, and so uh, what you're trying to do is you're not avoiding conceit because in this, in his case, he he thinks he knows better than everybody else. And, uh, and he's good at making that known that he thinks he's better than everybody else. Uh, I see that on Facebook, um, several different people actually, so I'm not going to identify any particular person. Okay, so Paul points to the royalty of Jesus Christ. And he points to his royalty for us to recognize our path to unity is of God. We follow the same path as Jesus Christ did. Um, then we should be okay. And the mind that Christ possessed is that he is God. That is what he was thinking. One of the many things he was thinking. But that's what in his, is, is, is in his mind. Is that he is God. He did not consider it robbery to think that he was in the form of God. That's verse 6. We'll get back to that here in a minute. I'm going to return to verse 6 in that comment. But we must bear a resemblance to this life if we would have the benefit of his death. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, and if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of this. So we must walk in the same spirit, and in the same steps with the Lord Jesus, who humbled himself to suffering and death for us. Not only to satisfy God's justice and pay the price of our redemption, but to set us as an example and that we might follow his steps. So the way Jesus Christ is thinking, we should be thinking as well. So what was in his mind? What was he thinking? And should it be in our mind as well? We can start with the example that we looked at last week, which was the lowliness of Christ and how we should emulate that lowliness ourselves, humbling ourselves just like Jesus Christ did. Uh, so this text gives us two unique and specific 
proneos, for that word, this mind in you, uh, to, and then that that we must have be like-minded as Christ. But what is in Christ's mind? We still haven't got to that, that answer yet. So let me give you this: What is in Christ's mind? Paul draws out two truths in this in this passage, verses five through eleven. The the first the first truth is that Jesus Christ was thinking about the divine nature of Christ, that He is God. And the second truth that He's thinking. Uh, after after the, his after his incarnation is the human nature of Christ, the divine nature of Christ, the human nature of Christ, the two natures of Jesus Christ. One he's fully God, one he's fully man, and we see that in verse six, uh, his divine nature in the form of God. So the word pre-incarnate or that expression pre-incarnate means before coming before becoming flesh. Before becoming flesh, flesh is what goes in your blank. And so before Christ became human, he existed as God. This is a confusing point for a lot of people, especially when we call Jesus Christ the Son of God and we refer to his birth. We celebrate his birth of Christmas celebration and the holidays. Uh, But he has always existed as God. The word form in verse 6, if you look at verse 6 again, um, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That word, um, the word form, thought it to be in the form of God. The word form is the word morphe, which is a Greek word, which talks about the being, the being that underlies um, the form. So who is the form? Well, the form of God. So God is the morphe. God is under, he's the underlying um, being, uh, and it basically refers to what goes in your blank. The word morphe refers to the form, but it refers to the essential being or the nature of God. That's what he. That's what Jesus Christ is taking on as the essential being of of God. And so, when Paul applied this this word to Christ being in the form of God, what he's saying is he meant that God was. Or he meant that Jesus Christ was the same as God. What is he in himself? His essential being or nature is God. That's what Jesus Christ is. That's what Paul is referring to. So verse 6 is saying that Jesus Christ existed in the essential being of God, having always and continuously and unalterably existed as God. So what we're answering here. What what Paul is describing for us is how is it that Jesus Christ is God when God is God? And Jesus Christ is now, he's also God as well. So Jesus was not only in the form of God, but he was equal, meaning he was alike in quality, in quantity, and in dignity. He was exactly the same as God. He was in the form of God. And Jesus considered it proper to see himself that way. He had there was there was nothing wrong with with Jesus Christ seeing himself as God or in the form of God, the essence of God, because he was God. In John chapter one, verses one to three, in that whole passage in the first fourteen verses of John chapter one, we won't read all of that, but we will read verses one to three, and then we'll read verse fourteen. It says in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. 
All things were made by him, and without him not anything was made that was made. So, um, and then John 1.14, And the word was made flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace. Okay, so these verses, 1 to 3, that we read, through the rest of them all the way down to verse 14, they confirm that Jesus is in the form of and equal to God. Jesus Christ is referred to as the Word. Now this is this is something that I find is very, this is really helpful for me to really understand how to describe Jesus Christ as being God. And so I'm, I'm, I hope I can clearly articulate this because I think it's important. So Jesus Christ is referred to as the Word, the Greek word logos, uh, or the Word. But so God is, too. Look at verse 1 again of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was God. But Jesus Christ is called the Word. So Jesus Christ is God by that statement. But there's more to it than that. There's more depth in here. Every word of God... Now, this is, just think about this for just a minute. Every word of God implies a thought. Every word of God implies a thought. Therefore, it is impossible to think that God was sometime in past, in the past, or even in the present. It's impossible to think that God is sometimes without a thought. So then God's thoughts are also eternal. The thoughts of God never go away. He always has these thoughts. He's never without a thought. That makes his thoughts eternal. And Jesus Christ, as the Logos, represents all the thoughts of God. Or more specifically, he, as God, speaks of God's mind and interprets God's will. The Logos, the Word, speaks of God's mind, so his thoughts and they interpret his will. Uh, so that makes the person fulfilling the meaning of word as always the manifestation of God. So whoever is the word, the thoughts of God, the, the will of God, is, is God, is God himself. For the one that bears the name word it is to the Godhead what speech is to thought. Um, you speak the things that you think you talk about the things that are in your mind. And your speaking defines who you are. How do we know a person? We know them by their word. We want to take somebody's word for, for it. You know, we take a handshake. We take their word. Their word backs up to who they are. They're identified by their word. God's word identifies who he is. Okay, so here we go. So, for the one that bears the name word is to the Godhead what speech is to thought, the very expression of thought. And so Jesus Christ represents God's mind and becomes the word incarnated as flesh. In John chapter 1, verse 18, it says, No man has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father. He, notice, he hath declared him. Who did that? Jesus Christ declared God. Because Jesus Christ knew the thoughts of God. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, it says, Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person 
and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he made, when he made, when he had by per, himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the Father of the Majesty, on the right hand of the Majesty on high. So Jesus Christ, in his pre-incarnate mode, represented the words of God, explained the words of God, and made them known to us. And so he knew the word, and the word was made flesh. That that explanation there brings Jesus Christ into being the form of God. And so the Apostle John, in, his, in the Gospel concerning the Logos, he confirms three truths about the Logos. First, The first truth is this. He, as one with God and as God, as God is from all eternity. So, because the thoughts have always been from eternity. The second thing is he becomes flesh, in John chapter 1, verse 14. And the third thing is that he ever manifest the first person in John chapter 1, verse 18. So with this comprehensive revelation of the Bible, all the Bible is in one... Let me, let me rephrase this. With all of this revelation, all the Bible is in one accord, and such is almighty, as all-wise, eternal person who came into the world to be the Savior of all men. And he came in representing the Word of God, and the Word of God is the form of God, and so therefore Jesus Christ is in the form of God himself. So the beginning of the incarnation, his human nature, Jesus did not regard equality with God as something he must take by force. He did not need to rob God of his identity as both Christ and God were identical. And he was in the form of God and represented the word of God, therefore needed no identity to prove that he was in the form of God because he is God. That's verse 6. Let's look at verses 7 and 8. It talks about his no reputation and empty. So Jesus emptied himself. He did not surrender his divine nature. That's not even possible. He continued to be the Son of God. And he gave up seven things that we've already kind of talked about last week and a little bit this week. And so we considered these. But just real quick bullet point. He gave up heavenly glory. He gave up independent authority. He gave up some of the prerogatives of deity by simply not using them. He gave up his personal riches. He gave up a part of his personal relationship with God the Father. He gave up his environment of glory, taking upon himself limitations of place and knowledge and power, and he stripped himself of the insignia of majesty. He did not and could not become less God in the incarnation. No deity was subtracted, rather humanity was added to his nature. So the method of emptying himself, how did he empty himself? To give up the things that we just listed is not the same as emptying himself. To empty himself and become a servant meant to become a slave. In order to empty himself, he had to become a slave. He could give up things. It doesn't change anything until he stepped into uh, being a slave. Uh, to empty himself and become a servant meant to become a slave in a permanent setting. And so the word, no re- the word of no reputation is also translated as empty and to make void. In Romans chapter 4, verse 4, it says it talks about making void. It says, For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void. Okay. And then I want to just I want to mention about form again. Form of servant versus the form of God versus the likeness of men. In 6, 7, and 8, we have those expressions. So if you look at verses 6, 7, and 8, he was in the form of God, verse 6. Verse 7, 
uh, he, he took upon him the form of a servant. And in verse 8, he was found in fashion as a man. So I'm going to talk about these three things here uh, just briefly. The words form and fashion in verses 6 and 7 help to contrast the appearance of Christ both before and after his incarnation. In verse 6, he was a form of God. In verse 7, he's a form of a servant. And in verse 8, he's found in fashion as a man. The word form we've talked about as morphe, essential nature. But the word fashion is the word schema, which is external form. So the schema refers to Jesus Christ's whole outward appearance as a man. When he took on, uh, when he was found in fashion as a man, he looked exactly like a human being. There was no, you couldn't, you couldn't study him and examine him. You could draw pictures of him. You could paint him. Do anything you want, but he's always going to look human. And when Jesus Christ left heaven, he took on the role of a servant. And at that moment, he took on all the attributes of man. He didn't sin, but he took on sin. He assumed all the infirmities of our nature. He appeared as all other people, and he was subject to the same bodily needs. And he is still in the form of God, but also in the form of a servant. And so when he was with his Father in heaven, he had the form of God, meaning he was equal with the essence of God. But in verse 7, he assumed the form of a servant, taking on the essential nature of a servant. That was his role on the earth. So he had a role in heaven as a form of God, and a role on earth as a form of a servant. So the phrase being found in fashion refers to the difference between the essence of Christ in God and the external form of Christ as a man. And the deity of Christ in the incarnation is stated in the essence. So Paul confirms in verse 6 that Christ, uh, that the Christ of the incarnation was he who existed in the essence of God. I should point out, as we, as we move on, I should point out that the word fashion in verse 8 does not imply that Christ's humanity was only apparent. It was very real. He didn't just look human. He was human. And then we have verses 9, 10, and 11, the exaltation of Christ. Verse 9, let's just read this. Wherefore God also highly hath highly exalted him and given him a name <clears throat> which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, Verse 9, in the first part of verse 9, we have God's response to Christ's humiliation. What happened to Jesus warranted God's lifting up of Christ. Uh, glory followed the humiliation of Christ when he became a servant. First Peter chapter 1 writes this, Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. So Christ knew his sufferings were in light of his exaltation. Speaking in Hebrews 12, 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the, of the throne of God. So if we go back to verse 5 for just a minute, the point in verse 5 is that we should too, we also should have the same attitude in our mind of suffering and exaltation. Peter again says in 1 Peter 5, 6, Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due times. He exalted Jesus Christ. He will exalt us as well. But we have to humble ourselves first. 
in Luke 14, verse 11, For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. And then in verse 9b, the middle part of verse 9, God gave him a new name. Now this is, this is an, you may, you may not have ever heard this said this way before, but I want to point this out. Typically we, we associate the name Jesus as the name that he gave, um, which is above every name, but that's not actually, when you think about it, the name Jesus isn't always the name that is above every name because, well, there's people that are named Jesus. There's other people that are named Jesus. So who are we talking about? Jesus Christ or just Jesus? And so so we have to be careful about what's going, what's being said here. And the point is, I'll, I'll make the point here in just a moment. Um, but God gave him a new name. In, in verse 9, it points to God exalting Christ when he gives him that name. Notice in Hebrews 1.4, though, it says, Being made so much better than the angels, and he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. He has a more excellent name. Not just Jesus. Uh, but in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, let me flip over to there. I didn't put that in my notes. Verse 5 says, For unto which of the angels says he at any time, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 5 indicates that the new name is son, for the name son is more honorable and exalted than any other name. To be a son of God, to be the son of God, is more important than any other name that we could name. And in a uh, finish up this passage here from the, the end of set, chapter 9 all the way through verse 11. A name that is above every other name. What name are we talking about? The assumption is the name given is Jesus, but he was given that name at his birth. He's our, so so it didn't, God didn't give him a new name, Jesus. He was given that name at his birth. Um, so the, we typically assume that we're talking about the name Jesus, but look at verse 11. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is what? Is Lord. That's the word. That's the name that he's been given. That's what we will bow to. That's what every knee will, bear, will bow to, is that he is Lord. Not just that he's Jesus, but that he's Lord. So he's the Lord over every person. Thomas called Jesus, remember when, when Thomas met Jesus Christ and he finally, you know, said, I'll stick my fingers in, your, in the holes of the nails and stuff. In John chapter 20, verse 28, he said, my Lord and my God. He didn't say, oh, you're Jesus. He said, my Lord and my God. And the source of the exaltation of Christ is God. And the title of the exaltation of Christ is Lord. The New Testament rings throughout that Jesus is Lord even starting in Luke chapter 2, verse 11, announcing his birth and identifying him as Christ the Lord. And so God bestowed this title of Lord after his humiliation and, as, uh, and after his sacrificial work was done. So that's just an interesting way to think about it. I know most people think, well, when you hear Jesus, every knee is going to bow. Yes, but why is he bound? Because he is the Son of God and he is the Lord over all. He is the Lord of all. That's the name that, he's, that we're really going to bow to. 
Not that he's just Jesus, but that he is our Lord. And so let me wrap up and we'll be done. Uh, so Jesus as a word and God. So Jesus is the word and God became flesh. And he fulfilled the plan of God, which was his will and fully expressed by Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ expressed his word. So we have both an ethical and a moral responsibility to lower ourselves for the good of the salvation of other people. And we also have a theological responsibility to lower ourselves for it is our Lord. For just as our Lord would do such a thing for us, how is it that we would reject lowering ourselves for the lives of other people? What are we going to do? How low will we go in humility to see another person receive Christ as Savior? And so that's... uh, that's the incarnation of Christ. That's that passage of Scripture. It's just really, it's a deep passage of Scripture just in those verses from verse 5 through verse 11. Uh, we'll wrap up chapter two, chapter 2 next week. We might get, I don't know if we'll get the whole chapter, but we'll get, we'll get a ways uh, next week. And uh, so next week is May 31st. I don't know exactly if we're going to do 6 o'clock or earlier. I will let you know. I wouldn't encourage you, though, to try to be at uh, main service at 1030 so you can take the Lord's Supper and celebrate with everybody else. And, uh, you know, do what God leads you to do, whether you go to church or uh, to the building in fellowship with everybody or you don't go. Um, Nobody will be condemned for whatever they do, whether they do or don't go. But I just want to encourage you to Seek God's guidance and direction on what you should do for that. And so let's pray, and we'll be dismissed. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for tonight. Thank you for the uh, technology of being able to enter into everybody's home or wherever they may be right now, um, just on their phone streaming and watching us. I pray, Lord, that you would just be glorified in it, that you'd be glorified in what was taught tonight, and that you would just um, give us all a good night's sleep tonight. And I do praise, Father, for uh, praise you for who you are, what you've done, and what you're doing through our lives. We just love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's see if I can get this turned off.